All right, so good to be in the study of God's Word together. Take your Bible and look with me at Luke 16. Luke 16, and we, uh, we spent some time introducing for you this next section, and you remember that Jesus is, of course, always trying to deal with this problem of people not wanting to admit their condition and then demanding some sort of proof beyond what he has said. In fact, I titled this message, If You Won't Believe the Word, You Won't Believe. That is essentially what Jesus does now in this confrontation he's been having with the Pharisees as they've overheard him talking to the disciples and and as they've been unmasked in this pretense that characterizes their life. They are a religious pretense. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, they demanded that he do something for them that made sense to them. In other words, convince me, Jesus, that you are who you say you are. Do another sign. Say another thing that that makes sense to me. Uh, Make sure that if you say you are who you are, that you demonstrate it with the proofs that I've laid out will convince me. This is what they said to him constantly. And his message was always the same to them. You must believe me. I read it in their confrontation in John 8 earlier. You don't know me because you don't believe me. You can't understand what I'm saying because you haven't got access to it by faith. You will not believe me. You believe in yourselves. You believe in a human assessment of the proofs that, that make me who I am in your mind. And, and if, you, if you don't see those proofs or those signs, then I'm not the one I claim to be, or so you imagine. And so in this confrontation, this is what Jesus does as he exposes, once again, this problem. In fact, by the end of this section, which will come this week and next, we'll have to finish it next time, in the story of rich men and Lazarus, he drives that point home at the very end of the story. Notice verse 31, he had said to him, that is to say, Abraham said to the rich man who was in torment, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. For a moment, I want to look at another text in John's gospel, John chapter 5. Look there for a moment with me. In another stunning description of this whole matter of our accountability before God for what he has said. Jesus, of course, was accused often of testifying merely to himself. And, of course, with a two or three witness requirement from the Old Testament law, they would often say, you're testifying of yourself so your witness isn't true. But Jesus made it very plain to the Jews in his day, the leaders of Israel, That his witness was true, not merely because he says it, although that's true. He could prove it by his very deeds and his very character and the fact that he was sinless and had power from on high. But beyond that, there were witnesses that accompanied Jesus' testimony of himself. And in John 5, the witness of the scripture takes center stage in verse 39. You not only had the witness of John back in verse 33, the witness of the works that Jesus did in verse 36, the witness of 
God the Father in 37 and 38, but here in 39, he says to the Jewish leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. What did he mean? You think that by obeying them, obeying the law, you have come to be righteous enough to be accepted by God on your own. That's what you think. And yet the scriptures testify about me. What? Testify what about Christ? That he would come as a Messiah, but a new covenant would have to be ratified. This is, by the way, why Israel today denies or pays no attention to the 53rd chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Because it speaks of a dead Messiah. It speaks of a Messiah that takes the guilt of Israel upon himself, imputed to him a foreign guilt because he is holy. And yet he takes their stroke for the healing of their spiritual life. They search the scriptures to adhere themselves to the law of God and then puff themselves up with the, the logic, their own logic, that they are enough. Their righteousness is enough. And he said, when you search the scriptures, you think that in that you have eternal life. And yet the scriptures testify about me. Verse 40, you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men. That is to say, I'm not here looking for human earthly trophies and triumphs and aggrandizement. But I know you, verse 42, you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I, came in my fa- I come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. They've had lots of gurus that they followed. Even in Israel, the Sanhedrin was a bit of a collection of gurus they asked the Israel to follow. And he says, if someone comes in their own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that's from the one and only God? So don't think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. In other words, the scriptures themselves in whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? There it is. If you will not believe his writings, how are you going to believe my words? If you don't believe the scripture, if you don't believe the word of God, because God wrote it, how will you ever believe? You are the authority if you don't believe what God, the ultimate authority, says. You are your own authority. And so this is why when Jesus dealt with Pharisees, he dealt with them different than he dealt with others who came to him with broken lives that needed Christ. The one attitude that Jesus confronted most bluntly, most unmistakably, most unwaveringly was this attitude that says, I want you to prove to me that you are who you are, otherwise I assess my own righteousness, I assess my own goodness, my own need, and I don't need you. And he was burdened by the fact that Israel led the unsuspecting sheep down that road into unbelief by trusting in themselves. Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I did not come to call the righteous. That's not the kind of person I came to call. I came to call someone who knew that they were unrighteous and in need of a physician, he would say. And so everything in this section, as we've been noting his confrontation of the Pharisees, comes down to the number of souls that would be influenced by their false teaching, by their false gospel, their false doctrine. 
their hypocrisy. They were hardening in their refusal to admit that they were sinners. And as they were hardened, they were dragging the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel with them. Later, when, he, when the Lord scathingly rebukes them on the Temple Mount, Matthew 23 records that he says, Woe to you, hypocrites, because you go about on the sea and on the land to make one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much of a son of hell as yourselves. That's right, because you're having him follow what you have said is the authority, and yet it is no authority. It's false religion. It's spiritual hypocrisy. It leads the unsuspecting into ruin, and it incurs the wrath of Christ. So it's true. Jesus reached out to the outcasts and the criminals of society. We saw that in Luke 5. He reaches out to the repentant, broken life like the prostitute in Luke 7. But he confronts bluntly the false gospel and unmasks it for what it is. They don't believe the word of God because they are unbelievers hardened in their unbelief by the religious pretense they put up. They put up a spiritual storefront behind which is a love of power, a love of worldliness, a love of material resources and ill gain. That's what they love. A false gospel dressed up in pseudo-righteous garb. And it's so dangerous, it, it casts a deceitful net ever wider. And this is what burdens our Lord. It's what 1 John 1.8 said. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If you say you're not a sinner by nature in need of a Savior who is Christ, then the truth isn't in you. Uh, so if you won't believe what the Bible says about us and our condition, you won't believe at all. The 10th verse of 1 John 1 says, if we say we've not sinned, if you say you've never had any sin, then you make God a liar. And again, his word is not in us. And so Jesus comes to confront them. And I want to camp out a little bit on verses 14 to 16, which we introduced briefly last time. But I want to sort of unpack it here in the marks of, of a false gospel, the marks of a false teacher. They're always the same, and the Pharisees here are no exception. Luke's commentary on them, verse 14, was that they were lovers of money. So the first mark you have here of a false gospel, a religious pretense, a storefront, is that you will always find in the lives of those who are influencing others that way, greed. Always a love of material gain, ill-gotten or otherwise, so that they can puff themselves up with power and influence over other people. Notice they were scoffing, the verse says. Why were they scoffing? Because they were mocking the truth, knowing that what Jesus had just said, you remember about the unrighteous steward who was savvy enough to make sacrifices today for securing his earthly security tomorrow, and Jesus had said believers ought to do the same thing with spiritual matters. You ought to be making the sacrifices today that God calls you to make in order to secure your eternity. Don't attach yourself to money here. You can't love God and money, he had said. But then he pulls the mask off the Pharisees and said, look, I know that you have a religious pretense, but you're all about the greed and the money, and you're scoffing at me as proof of it. I have literally unmasked what's behind all of your pretensions to holiness and leading the people of Israel. You love money. 
The scriptures warn about this, and we looked at it last time somewhat, but just a reminder of some passages. Paul in Titus 1.11 says, Teachers who subvert whole households for ill-gotten gain, or filthy lucre, some of your translations say. The advantage gained by the disadvantage of others at their expense. Dishonorable means of gaining resources to use them for power and influence. In 3 John 9 and 10, you have the, the contrast between a godly man like Demetrius and Diotrephes who loved power. He was lured by power and praise. Look, I don't, I don't believe for a minute that the greed of false teachers is merely about the money. Money is just a an exchange system. It's something valued for trade. Currency comes and goes through the generations uh, per country. Uh, the issue was what money gets you. Money gets you power and influence and the love of pleasure gets fed any way you choose as you have more money. People never say no to you. You ever notice that? that we wonder why these, it, these people who go from nothing to instant millions uh, have trouble in their life. Because suddenly, the circle of friends that used to hold them naturally accountable, the laws of the country that used to hold people naturally accountable, are all now influenced by the, by the popularity and the massive wealth that someone suddenly has come into. And people don't say no to you anymore. Your friends don't sharpen the iron of your life anymore. No one says what needs to be said when they see something in your life. And... So you live in, a, in an echo chamber, a bubble of your own fancy and, and a false sense of security. Well, when you're the leader of some false religion, there's no doubt that you love that kind of influence because you want, to, you want people to worship you, your intellect, your religious status, your influence, your popularity, your power, your sense of yourself. And so money facilitates that. Paul said that all false teachers they subvert households with that kind of influence. Peter would say the opposite about shepherds, 1 Peter 5, 2. They are to feed the flock not for sordid money or resources or gain, but with eagerness. In fact, in 2 Corinthians eleven seven, he chided the false teachers for charging for the gospel. You're making the gospel into a money venture. You remember when Jesus went up on the Temple Mount that first visit John chapter 2 records he went up there and, and it was a mess of extortion and criminal behavior. Sure, they had, to, they had to buy and sell sacrificial animals for the families coming in to make their sacrifice during the festival. And sure, they had currency booths where you could exchange currency depending on where you had come from. But the levels of extortion and markup and the money trading hands under the table was so massive, Jesus saw all of it and just cleaned it out. This is just a pretense. You, you've all come up here to worship. This is supposed to be the house of worship. And out of zeal for true worship, I'm going to clean the decks because you love what money gets you. You're swindlers. You're extorters. And you use it to threaten and manipulate and deceive and defraud. They run greedily after it, Jude 11 says. And that's what you notice here. They were lovers of money, and so they were scoffing at Jesus. Another mark 
of the false teacher or false gospel or leader of a false religion is the crafting of an image. And you notice that here, the crafting of an image. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. Very, very important phrase tacked on to the end. It is in contrast to what is known in the sight of God, the end of verse 15. But he says, you justify yourselves in the sight of men. And the Pharisees needed to be confronted on this again. They were always setting up a spiritual dichotomy between themselves and everyone else around them. Look over a couple chapters at Luke 18 for a moment. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. There it is. He's going to tell a parable to confront people who trust in their own righteousness and view others with contempt, verse 9 says. And so Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other an outcast. Tax collector was just a youth. It was a synonym for an outcast, a traitor, a betrayer. He left Judaism and his own people, got into a tax booth for Rome, and extorted God's people for the sake of his own gain. He was a traitor. And Jesus in the story says that he went up to the temple to pray and found himself alongside a Pharisee who'd done the same. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And you know how the story goes. The tax collector in Jesus' parable couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He was so shattered by his miserable life and knew that he would come under judgment. And Jesus said, which one went down to his house justified? Clearly, the, the one that Israel would never imagine is forgiven, let alone the leaders of Israel. But notice his bragging, the storefront of his life. I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This is a false front. That's what it is, a false front. Look over at Romans chapter 2 for a moment. Romans chapter 2 further describes how Israel had gotten to this point. And it is really rather striking what Paul says to them. Beginning in verse 17, Romans 2, he says, if you, if you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law and boast in God, and notice how he just piles it on, you know his will, you approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, and you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. If those things are true of you, verse 21, and you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? When you think about that in light of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple, 
And the Pharisee brags, I'm glad I'm not like those that, have, that aren't worthy of me. I don't swindle. I don't cheat on the, the law of God. No, this is, this is the false front that is put up. Why is it such a concern to Jesus? Why didn't he just write them off, say, you know, don't listen to them, move on? Because they are influencing the unsuspecting. That's the problem. And he points it out here. You are going to influence the unsuspecting because you're justifying yourselves in the sight of men. In fact, in Romans 16, you might be interested to jot that down for your own study, but in Romans 16, Paul warns the church about these kinds of guys with a storefront whose hearts are full of deception. Look, crafting an image is basic stock and trade for the false gospel, the false teacher, the false religion. Crafting an image of spirituality of some sort is stock and trade stuff, but you, as Jesus says, ought to watch the life. You ought to watch the fruit and not be unsuspecting. Notice Romans 16, verse 17, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn. Look, listen to their doctrine, compare it with scripture. Are they divisive over the essentials of the faith? Are they drawing people away with subtle teachings that go outside of orthodox clarity in scripture? Notice the commentary on their motives, Romans 16, verse 18, for such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And with smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They test people with that storefront talk. They find the weak and vulnerable, and they deceive their hearts with speech and a spiritual pretense on the outside. Say, who are the unsuspecting? Well... You can imagine it would, it would be anyone who's vulnerable because they don't believe the word of God. I mean, look, Christians can be vulnerable to false teachers, and I find sometimes the sheep are listening to false teachers without discernment. Why? Because they've been deceived in their being unsuspecting. They're undiscerning. Why are they undiscerning? They're not checking things by scripture. Don't don't imagine that just because someone says they're a Bible teacher, just because someone says they do exposition, just because someone says that the church is faith-based or these principles are in Scripture, that you don't have a responsibility to check that. False teachers always deceive the unsuspecting. And listen, beloved, they look for people who on the one hand are indiscriminating and they got that way because they love comfort and are lazy. If you're lazy about the word of God and you love earthly comforts more than you love change and growth, there you're going to be non-discriminating and the false teacher is going to find you. The false doctrine is going to come your way. That book, that movie, that, that ideology, that website, you're not going to be able to tell because you're unsuspecting. They also look for new converts. People new in the faith. When we did our study of the book of Romans, we, we talked a lot about that. Sometimes when you're new in the faith, that is precisely when Satan is going to move in. This is why going to a church that won't tell you the truth and preach the truth when you're a new believer is disastrous. I don't know how many times we 
we get these beloved sheep who've been starving and you say, where have you been? And they tell you and, and you, you know that that ministry is no ministry for the feeding and leading of the sheep. They're doing a whole bunch of other things that are not healthy and they're not nourishing the sheep. And they've been there five years, seven years, ten years. That is, that's because they wandered into a place they should not go. They're new in the faith and, and their hearts are deceived because they're unsuspecting. There's one other characteristic I think that makes people vulnerable and that's just a disdain for authority. False teachers always look for people that are agitated to have to come under the authority of anything or anyone, let alone God's word. If you're in Christ, then you have submitted your heart to the ultimate authority, God in Christ. But if you chafe in general by personality, by just irritation, by habits of life, by the way you grew up, by maybe some father figure in your life or somebody who taught you that, if you chafe at authority in general, and when God's word is taught to you, you are skeptical and chafing at its authority, at its directness. You must deal with that because you are vulnerable. You're vulnerable to false doctrine. People who chafe at authority find themselves chafing at God's word because people who chafe at authority lack faith. If you, if you chafe at authority, your faith is weak because the scriptures are the ultimate authority and you should believe them and put your faith in them and submit to them. Soft to the scriptures. And notice how Paul says we're to treat people who deceive the unsuspecting. He says, get away from them. Get away from them. Turn away from them. Have nothing to do with them. And so crafting an image is a characteristic Jesus points out in the lives of the Pharisees. He says, I don't want you to be deceived. They craft an image because they are trying to deceive. That is their whole point. They love what they can control. The third characteristic is the searing of their conscience. Back to Luke 16. The searing of their conscience. Notice what Jesus says. God knows your hearts. You justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. This says two things. One, that God indeed sees everything. And, and so notice that last statement in verse 15, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. We'll get to that in a moment. But that indicates here that that it becomes the opposite. Good is evil and evil is good in the, in the minds of those who are a storefront, who are phonies. They don't see things rightly. Everything gets turned on its head. God knows the hearts, he says. You justify yourself in the sight of men, but in the sight of God, your conscience isn't sensitive to God. Your conscience is seared. So there's a third characteristic of false teachers, the searing of the conscience. They justify themselves in the sight of men, ignoring the burden on the conscience when they know the truth. And the Pharisees were the worst. They knew the law of God. They preached the law of God, taught the law of God, acted like guides to the blind. And that's why Paul had to say, really? Guides to the blind? You say don't love money, you love money. You say to people you need to be faithful to the law of God, and you're not faithful to the law of God. You say you're worshipful, but you're all about worshiping yourself. Self-righteousness is your game. And yet, 
Christ calls for humility. God calls for humility. You'll know them by their fruits. What is the conscience? Well, the scriptures indicate that, that it's that wonderful moral framework, that mechanism within our, our moral makeup, made in the image of God, wherein we understand right from wrong in its basic framework. It's built into us. You cannot get away from it. And the conscience, according to Romans 2.15, doesn't need uh, all the specifics of truth and what God requires in order for that thing to start firing off. It can be mistrained because it itself isn't the law of God, but it is a mechanism that holds you to, uh, accountable to what you say you believe. So if you're a religious pretense on the front side and on the inside you're full of darkness your conscience is going to be firing off you have to do something about that eventually as your conscience burdens you as the law of God would have burdened the Pharisees they just silenced it they just said no they just trampled it stomped on it you could think of it like nerve endings they just cauterized the nerve endings of their spiritual sensitivities and could not feel anymore the pangs of conscience when the law of God spoke. God knows the hearts, but they justified themselves in the sight of men. Their consciences were seared, if you will. Don't turn there, but in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about a time when in the latter times people will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and demonic doctrine by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron there it is leaders who come along and they know uh, the truth enough to put up a spiritual pretense but whenever the pangs of their conscience would want to hold them accountable to what's coming out of their mouth their lips Praise God, but their hearts are far from him and their consciences get trampled, bludgeoned, seared. It's dangerous even for believers. If you, if you uh, know the truth, the more you know the truth, the more it should burden our conscience. And as it burdens our conscience, we should not ignore it. We should listen to it. We should go back to the scriptures. We should repent, keep it clean, keep it cleansed, work hard to stay faithful. You can't know everything. You can't acquit your conscience on everything because you don't know all the sin that's occurring in your life at any one given time. And even Paul admits that in 1 Corinthians 4. Hey, I examined myself, but that's not the ultimate scorecard. So I have to wait for the Lord to reveal those things, but I'm going to strive to not ignore it, not trample it, not cauterize the nerve endings of it. You can always tell false teachers who, who seem never bothered by the difference between what comes out of their mouth and how they live behind the scenes. Never bothered by it at all. It is normal life for them. And Jesus says, you justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. So they're greedy and they craft an image and they sear their conscience. And then this last portion of verse 15 mentions a contempt for the truth that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. False teachers and false gospel and false religion always has a contempt for the truth. And this is, this is, of course, Jesus pulling the mask off of their 
common practice of living a contradictory life. Just as Paul had confronted them in Romans 2, they contradict the law. And you, you wonder why he brings up what he brings up in verse 18 when he goes all the way back to the issue of marriage and Moses granting a certificate of divorce for the innocent party, even though God hates divorce. Israel was told, yes, there are exceptions for the innocent party. I'll grant it because of the hardness of people's hearts. But you, you have taken that law, we'll deal with this next time, you've taken that that rule for the protection of the innocent party, and you've turned it into a reason to divorce any time for anything. And you guys are the ones upholding the law as the leaders of Israel. I know what you're doing behind the scenes. You ignore the fact that you'll get rid of a spouse for the smallest little thing that that should have never been allowed. You don't love your spouse. You just live for your pleasure, and then you violate that law while telling other people to uphold it. Look, this, he says, is to be detestable in the sight of God. Oh, it's highly esteemed among men. Oh, they must be so spiritual. Their spouse couldn't, couldn't measure up, so they had to get rid of them had to get rid of their spouse, and Moses allowed her uh, rid of divorce, so, so they got rid of their spouse because they, she just couldn't measure up spiritually, and it got even worse than that. It was, they divorced them for their looks, they divorced them for uh, management of the money at home, which wasn't, wasn't done in their best estimation, and a host of other ridiculous things recorded in church history. The point is they were using these things as a way of puffing themselves up and ignoring what the truth said. They had a contempt for the truth. And he says, look, it seems clear to everyone else when the prophets and the law pointed to a Messiah and John the Baptist came as the transitional prophet to point to me as the Messiah. It seems clear to everybody else. Say, where does he say that? Notice verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it, which is another way of saying they're forcefully striving to get into the kingdom that I'm preaching, that John the Baptist preached. They seem to be following me around looking for answers. You guys are standing there saying, I want to kill you. Not even the crowds yet are willing to kill me because they've heard from the law and the prophets all their life like you. You've preached the law and the prophets that a Messiah would come. And when John the Baptist, the greatest Old Testament prophet, finally came on the scene and made that transition, that bridge between the message of the Old Testament and the new covenant that the Messiah is here and that the kingdom now is upon you, its inauguration is here, it has dawned. You've heard all that. Everyone around you striving to forcefully know how to get into the kingdom, he says. But you, you want to kill me. And know this, he says, verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. He points out their hypocrisy. He absolutely holds them in court. You guys have heard the law and prophets all your lives, handed down through the generations of our people. You've heard the preaching of the kingdom, starting with John the Baptist and continuing through my ministry and my disciples. My ministry is the focus. My death is the focus. And everyone around you has heard the preaching of the kingdom and is forcefully striving to become a part of it, whatever it takes. And you want to take me out and kill me? 
You guys claim to be the guys who love the law and the prophets and teach the law and the prophets and follow the law and the prophets and know it. In other words, you claim to be the most ardent strivers after the righteousness of God. But not one stroke or little accent mark of the law will fail until it's all fulfilled. And here you are ignoring it. How so? Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. You marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. In an unbiblical divorce situation where, there, where somebody has committed that act and God hates that act, there was no exception for you. There was no writ of divorce for you. You're not the innocent party in the matter. And you are carrying others into sin. You've been doing that as Pharisees with this storefront of righteousness. But he says the law is fixed. The law is fixed. It won't change. You can't change it. You can't rewrite it. You can't depreciate it by, by some religious front on the front side to pretend that you follow it. And then behind the scenes, everybody can see what you're doing. You, you say you're devoted to the law and it's clear that you hate it. You have contempt for it. There'll be an answer to that, he says. What's Jesus' diagnosis? Well, as we'll study next time, that's why he goes into the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Because he wants them to know. You want me to persuade you to go beyond where you are. And if you won't believe the very law and prophets you say you're devoted to, you won't believe you will not respond to the scriptures. In fact, go back to the end of chapter 16 to, I had read verse 31, but go back a little ways. Verse 26, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Once you cross the threshold of death, that's it. There are those in torment and there are those in paradise and a great gulf fixed and there will never be any crossing over. I always wonder when people say they're going to get a second chance, how they deal with that, what Jesus said right there. I mean, we can quote Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men once to die, then comes judgment. But here is a statement from the Lord himself no one can cross over. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. When he said that in this story, it would have stung those Pharisees that he had just been exposing who loved money and had contempt for the truth and put on a facade. That would have stung them. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. This is, this is the person in torment trying to develop a theology of second chances or worse, a theology that says they don't have to have faith. As long as they experience it, then they'll believe. Look, you're turning the gospel on its head. Faith brings understanding and not the other way around. Faith comes first. What is faith? What does Hebrews 11.1 1 say? Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Look, even if someone comes back from the dead, that's a human experience. 
and your human assessment will, ex will look at the human experience and you think that's going to convince your hardened heart when God's word wasn't enough, his character wasn't enough, his revelation wasn't enough? If he's the highest authority and he says Jesus is the Messiah and you won't believe that, you're going to believe some earthly experience, some phenomena that takes place outside the natural order? No. If you are a higher authority than God, then no other human being is ever going to assail your authority. Doesn't matter what they say they're experiencing. Doesn't matter what your human eyes see. They will repent, he said. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Well, of course, we know that in the ultimate sense, because Jesus did rise from the dead and his resurrection is a fact of history and still people will not believe. Though the Lord of glory himself rose from the dead, people will not believe. Why? Because they already believe themselves to be justified. They justify themselves in the sight of men. They seek glory from one another. They want earthly things, earthly comfort, money, power, Read. They put on a false religious front or they follow some religious guru that does the same. Why? Because we will not listen to God's word. If you won't believe the word of God, you won't believe. This is God's revelation ratified and made known and explicated in the, in the living revelation of his word, Jesus Christ himself, the living word. It is from God. God does not lie, cannot lie. What he says is true. What he says about sin is true. What he says about his son is true. The death of his son on the cross. People say to me all the time, how do you know you're forgiven for all your sins? Because my sins were placed on Christ at the cross. How do you know that? The scriptures say it. Oh, that was written by men. Prove that. This is God's holy word. And they will often say, well, you just believe that by faith. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, what else am I going to have? You? Me? Belief in me? Belief in you? Belief in some human guru? Belief in a human authority? Or faith in faith itself? What is that? I put faith in what God said because it's God who said it. And God is the ultimate authority. Look, if you won't believe the ultimate authority, you're not going to believe any human experience, or even your assessment of it. Why do you think science, scientists deny the gospel for the sake of science? Because they worship their own assessment of data, what comes through their eye gate and comes through their intellect and their logic and their reason. They lay it out and they come to their conclusions. You say, well, isn't it logical to do that? You know what Romans 1 says? That when they see what they see, in, they, they know by nature that there's an intelligent designer behind it and that he's more powerful than them, Romans 1 says. You know what they do? They tell that knowledge, hey, shut up. I don't want to hear it. And they sear their conscience as with a branding iron. And in doing so, they leave themselves with their own authority. No wonder they won't believe the word because there's no higher authority than themselves. If you're in Christ, 
You already have submitted, as I said, to the highest authority, to God's word. But don't think that you can't come under the influence of false doctrine because of love of comfort, your own level of greed, your own serving of material things rather than God, your own love of your intellect, your own self-righteousness and being puffed up in your pride. All these things leave us open to an ineffective Christian life because we don't submit ourselves to God's word. Jesus just pulls the mask off of them. So good for the disciples to see this happening so that they're duly warned to never go down that road. You cannot serve God and yourself. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for the reminder and the striking way in which Jesus confronts a self-righteous, false religious system, a false gospel. Lord, there are all kinds of those things that come our way, and we sometimes find ourselves surprised at how far down the road we can get in some ideology, and then we come to the scriptures and we find that we've been believing wrong things, sinful things, false doctrine. Protect your church, protect your people from it. Keep us from the pretense of a false storefront and having praise on our lips, but our hearts far from you. Call us to repentance. Keep us soft to your truth. May we believe it and, and come under it with, with the power of your spirit at our disposal because we have believed you with thankfulness and gratitude in our hearts for your word. It is our life. May we never chafe at the authority of it. May we never demand from you more proofs, more convincing things. How foolish to imagine that that will produce faith when it's rooted in self. Lord, thank you for teaching us these things as, as you unmasked the religious system that stole so many souls. And so, Lord, we are grateful for your word. Help us to know it and to stand firm in the truth and to stay away from these uh, tendencies that reflect the hardness of the Pharisees as they rejected the gospel. And may we help others see that they will only come by faith. May we call them to faith, not to wrangling about all kinds of things. Search the word, seek the word. That is our goal. Give us the strength to do that and the endurance to do that. Lord, we give you the honor and the glory. We pray that we don't seek glory from one another, but only for your sake and only to magnify yours in our lives. Make us useful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.